The Anarchist's Workbench by Christopher Schwarz Published by Lost Art Press This recording is by Ray Defterius and is not affiliated or endorsed by Lost Art Press in any manner. Any errors or omissions are purely the fault of the narrator, as is any general bungling of pronunciation of names. Chapter 2 Internal Doubt and Defined Retort In the 1990s, when I was desperate for a decent, or really any workbench, I wasn't alone. Most serious hand-tool woodworkers I knew at the time owned some sort of European cabinet maker's workbench. You know the type. Sled feet, face vice, tail vice, and a series of square dogs. There's a tool tray at the back. Below the bench top might be a cabinet for storing tools and bench appliances. It's a good bench design. I own one. But it is a complex bench to build, and it is expensive to buy a good one. As a result, most hobbyists I knew at the time had either a bench that was built into their shed or garage, or they had something more like my door and sawhorses bench, a makeshift work surface that was fine for routing, sanding, and other power tool tasks. I also knew a lot of people who used old wooden desks. Hi Keith. Or a pile of cheap kitchen cabinets topped with a couple of layers of plywood. One of the problems we all faced in the 1990s was the lack of great workbench hardware in the catalogues. Jorgensen and Record still made decent quick-release vices, but if you wanted other varieties of new vices, your choices were limited. There were some no-name vice screws from Europe for making their native benches, some horrible aluminium planing stops, and commercial holdfasts made from grey iron. They didn't hold your work until you struck them really hard. And if you hit them really hard, they would break. Grey iron is a dumb material for holdfasts. Oh, and there was one really good workbench book. The workbench book, Taunton, by Scott Landis. Since that time, the world of workbenches has changed for the better. There are companies both large and small that make good quality commercial benches. There's so much vice hardware out there that people don't ask, where can I find a wooden screw for a leg vice? They ask, who makes the best? Blacksmiths and large companies now make holdfasts and quality planing stops that are readily available to anyone with a computer. Now, the problem is different. There are almost too many bits of hardware to choose from, and too many words written about workbenches. Perhaps this is like fighting high cholesterol with a package of cheese curds, but that's why this book exists. Say you don't want to read the 10 million workbench posts out there, or sort through the 18.5 million videos, that was an April 2020 search about building a workbench. Or ponder the thousands of iterations possible for the following simple equation. Style of bench plus type of face vice plus type of tail vice. How about one short book? One that wraps it all up. Could that book discuss all the workbenches I have built, but really distill the designs down to one bench? The conclusion of decades of cycles of research, construction, and use. And could the book and that one bench reflect the way I live as an American aesthetic anarchist? That last sentence might have made you wince. Why discuss a fringe philosophy in a book about a chunky table with vices? 
If you haven't thought much about the act of making things, that's okay. But let me assure you that building durable objects these days is a radical deal. So here's a brief, I promise, explanation. I'm not out to convert anyone to anything, but I do want to explain the title of the book. American aesthetic anarchism is often confused with nihilism or rampant lawlessness. In truth, anarchism and its underlying idea of mutualism has little to do with violence or overthrowing the government. Please look them up if you don't believe me. Most American anarchists, like most Democrats and Republicans, are peace-loving, justice-seeking, normal people. Anarchists think the scales of justice have probably never worked properly. The big companies, the governments, and the churches happen to own the scales, and they know how to make them work in their favor. You've probably noticed that the giant corporations are the single most powerful force in our economy, far more important than individuals or small businesses. Economic growth and expansion is their goal, year over year over year. As a result, our economy is driven by endless consumerism. Another byproduct, products that were once durable, such as furniture, are now disposable. Hey, I know you know this. And so we spend money to replace things that once lasted a lifetime. Things such as a simple dining room set of bookshelves. Yeah, we can't even make bookshelves right. You don't have to live like this. You can trade your handmade furniture for a pair of home-sewn pants or get your eggs from the people who also feed the chickens. Don't buy from Amazon or Esmart if you can avoid it. Truth, sometimes I cannot avoid it. In most towns there's a baker, a butcher and a candlestick maker who have somehow survived economic apocalypse. You can shop there. Or take the biggest step. Quit your corporate job and join the ranks of the candlestick makers. Build things that can be repaired and will never need replacing. Tip the scales of commerce the other way with your dirty thumb. You don't even have to call this anarchism. You can call it pre-capitalism, the barter system, or just being neighborly. So getting back to the question, how could a workbench design reflect my ideas about a more pleasant and just society? You can skip ahead to chapter 11 if you want to see where I ended up. Or you can follow the bright string I've rolled out for you through the early chapters as I build the argument for this bench design. If you follow the string, you might end up with a different ideal design, even if we embrace the same criteria for what makes a good bench. And that's okay, neighbor. Here, however, is where I begin. A workbench should never have to be replaced or upgraded. I'm not a fan of tools, furniture, or anything that becomes obsolete. Mass market workbenches, much like mass market tools, have a short lifespan. That way you are obligated to buy another tool or workbench further on down the line. This feeds a wasteful machine. The workbench should be made using raw materials and components from small businesses or individuals wherever possible. By and large, this stuff is better. And purchasing it, or bartering for it, helps support individual makers and business owners, just like you. That relationship, individuals helping individuals, has always made sense to me. Another great alternative is to get your wood from places that recycle construction waste. I built benches with the leftover logs from a timber frame site. Their offcuts are easily big enough to make a bench. 
The workbench should help you make furniture that never needs replacing. In many ways, the workbench is the mother of all my thoughts about furniture and society. With your bench and your tools, you can make furniture for customers and loved ones that ends the stupid cycle of 1. Buy a bookcase. 2. Use it until it falls apart. 3. Buy another bookcase. Oh, I had one more question. Could this book not be the Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull of my career? Let's find out. Where to begin? Let's start with the most common question I get from would-be workbench builders. What species of wood is best for making a bench? The answer to that question also happens to be the most important lesson I've learned when I built my first real workbench. Here it is. Yellow pine and construction lumber in general is the bench builder's friend. After struggling with my door and sawhorse workbench, I found myself sneaking back for a conjugal visit with the other benches in the magazine's workshop. Most of the other benches consisted of thin bench tops, which had been massive doors in a previous life, perched on top of kitchen cabinet-like bases with drawers and doors. They all had quick-release vices, but that was about all they offered for work holding. Jim's turn to build a workbench had come, and he had a newly built workbench with a massive pattern maker's vise and a tail vise with a system of dogs. But its biggest advantage was its thick top, which you could easily clamp stuff to. Jim had chosen hard maple for the bench top, because it was difficult to purchase steamed European beech locally. And hard maple is similar in weight and stiffness to beech. If you want to see it, search bulletproof bench at Popular Woodworking. Small magazines run on a shoestring, and the maple had cost us a relative fortune, $800. I knew that fact, because I'd approved the invoice and had to manage the workshop's annual budget. I knew there was no way I'd amass that kind of money for wood on my own. It was more than my monthly mortgage. Plus, it was unlikely that the magazine would ever shell out that kind of money for my workbench. I was just a word herder. One weekend day I was at our local home centre to buy a paintbrush, spackle or who the hell knows. As I walked by the lumber section, I was stopped short by a sharp and familiar smell. Someone was cutting yellow pine on the store's radial arm saw and hit a pungent sap pocket. It smelled like scorched turpentine and suddenly I was 11 years old again in Hackett, Arkansas. Yes, it's time for a flashback, the mark of quality literature. My parents were hippie-adjacent, back-to-the-land people. Soon after moving to Arkansas when I was five, they bought an 84-acre farm in the Boston Mountains and made plans to build our house there. My parents took a home-building class at the Shelter Institute in Bath, Maine, and suddenly every weekend we were camped out in a dark and buggy Arkansas forest. No electricity, no running water. The two things I remember most the wool blanket of humidity stuffed down my throat, and the smell of yellow pine. In the South, and most of the Midwest, yellow pine is the preferred construction material for the frames of houses, joists, rafters, plates and headers. Some stud walls can be made from weaker stuff, but yellow pine is a must for the load-bearing components. I knew from years of helping my dad build our houses that yellow pine was dense and strong. And when you found a board that was full of sap, it felt like you were hauling a steel beam 
instead of a wooden 2x12. And its smell? Equally strong. At the home centre, with the sap in my nostrils, I walked to the ceiling-high racks of yellow pine, enough for ten workbenches. Right there, I crouched down to look at the price tag for a 12-foot-long 2x8. It was $9.57. If yellow pine was strong enough to build a house, would it be strong enough to build a workbench? Without any facts whatsoever, I decided that it was. And the next week, I talked to my boss. What if I could build a fully functioning workbench for less than $200, I asked Steve. Could we print that story? We could call it the $175 workbench. Steve looked sceptical, but I had a construction drawing, a cutting list, and most important, a price list of everything I needed down to the last fender washer. One of the things you must know about editing a magazine is that there's nothing so appealing to an editor as a gimmick or a good cover line. There was a legend in our company that the editor of Men's Health once came up with a genius cover line while he was on the airplane. It was so juicy that as soon as the plane landed, he called up the magazine and told them to commission a writer to create a story to match the cover line. The cover line? Bed-busting sex. I totally believe that the story is true. Steve, however, was unsure about using yellow pine for a workbench. If it's strong enough to build a house, it's got to be strong enough for a workbench, I said, turning my internal doubt into a defiant retort. Steve looked at my drawing. He asked a few questions, then tilted his head, like he was in for a long think. Then I blurted, I'll pay for all the wood. It won't cost the magazine a thing. Steve, sold. Now I had to find out if my boast about yellow pine was right. It was time to hit the books and the lumberyard. yard.